Read along with me, if you would, the first five verses. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, if you would, please. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to to let your word do his work. And thank you, Lord, that everything is about responding versus making happen. And I just thank you so much for that. Bless this time now, I pray. May your word burst open and come alive. And Lord, may we all get it. Please. May our hearts and our minds be open to hear and receive and to know your love personally. I pray you would immerse me in your spirit, that I would disappear and you would be seen, and that I would be carried in your flow, that you'd come upon me to empower me to do that which only you can do, and that you would speak to each one of us individually right where we need to be spoken to, right where we can hear you and right where we get it and where we know that you've spoken to us. And Lord, now as well, have your way. Save, transform, challenge, exhort, encourage. Do all the work you want to do. Just don't leave us alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Uh, Let the Bible always have the final say. Hey, would one of you guys just close that door in the back or just like kind of keep it so it's cracked so that they can sing as loud as they want back there in that other room and um, we're not dripping into them or they are us. I'd like you to consider the fact that Galatia is not a city. it's It's a region. It's a region from the Black Sea down into the Mediterranean, the central part of Turkey. And I'd like you to consider the fact that of all the letters that have been written, I'd like you to consider Romans is Italy. First and second Corinthians, of course, is Greece. Galatia, that's Turkey. Ephesus, that's Turkey. Philippi, that's Macedonia. Colossae, that's Turkey. The Thessalonica letters, those letters are written to uh, Thessalonica is in Thessaloniki is in Macedonia. You get to the pastoral letters. Paul's writing to Timothy appears to be in Ephesus. That is Turkey. When we get to the book of Revelation, and he writes to the seven churches, Ephesus, that's in Turkey. Smyrna, that's in Turkey. Pergamos, that's in Turkey. Thyatira, that's in Turkey. Sardis, that's in Turkey. Philadelphia, that's in Turkey. Laodicea, that's in Turkey. When we read in the book of Acts, Demetrius, the idol maker, has a frenzy because business is bad for the idol business. Because Paul has reached the entire area two and a half times the size of the UK. One guy with a small team going into, in those days, what was called Asia Minor, the west coast of Turkey. It appears as if the entire west coast was saturated with one way or another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches planted everywhere. The area of Galatia, filled with many churches as a result of it. Paul himself, originally from the southeast corner of Turkey, and had planted churches in the area of Cilicia. And yet today, 
the nation of Turkey, there is less than 1% evangelical Christian in the entire country. What happened? I mean, we could say that there was this sort of violent movement among the Muslim population where they kind of went in through these sort of tyrants that kind of rose up and, and killed anybody that wouldn't convert. But, but the strange thing is when you look at the history of it, there is this strange thing where most of the people actually refused to, to die. They would rather give up their Christianity as they knew at the politic and gladly join the other ranks. And we sit, I sit today with an individual who is interviewing about what they call post-Christian Europe. And I look at this letter. And I realize that this letter is written somewhere in this place where the church seems to be having its heyday, but it's already showing signs of, of problems. It's already showing weaknesses. Like that person, in, and I don't know if you've seen this, but there have been specific athletes who have died on the field. And it seems like a real surprise to us. Because from what we can tell, it just seems like out of nowhere they just kind of up and keel over and die in front of us. But if you start reviewing the tapes, you start seeing moments where this illness was creeping in and taking over and in moments where things that would just, well that's uncharacteristic and, and that kind of thing and all of a sudden you realize that this athlete within sometimes within very small period of time collapses and dies in front of us and, and, and the reason I say that is that's what they're saying with the church here and, and I look at this and in these five short verses that's exactly what he's addressing twice in this he says foolish in verse 1, O oh foolish Galatians. And in verse 3, are you so foolish? The word for foolish here isn't like, I mean, of course, my head coming from originally from Chicago, I hear Mr. T, you know, oh, fool, we're a fool, we're you know, But I realize the word, first of all, there's this word noeha. It means to think, to concentrate, to focus. As a matter of fact, that word with the word, the, the prefix beside, which is para, like paragraph, beside the writing, is where we get the word paranoia from. It means beside your thinking. Versus the physical part, which is called the brain, which would be the word fren, the Greek word pater, schizophren, where we get literally means torn brain. And, and the reason I say that is a paranoia person would be somebody that would be beside their thinking. And the word thinking is the beginning of it. But when you add an A to something or an alpha to something in Greek, it, ne it makes it negative. A theist believes in God. An atheist or an atheist doesn't believe in God. A person who claims to know is a Gnostic. A person who claims not to know is an agnostic. Agnostic. That's the negative. And the reason I say that is the word for foolish in both of these cases is a noeho or a noeti. In other words, it literally just means you're just not thinking. It doesn't just mean that you're just being silly. It means that you should be thinking of this and you don't. You're being careless about it. And you know what this is like. Have you ever played a game like where you kind of, I used to do this when I was in university, where I would play chess with guys, and what I would do is I would just do five random moves, and then I would try to figure out where I was and try to get myself out of it. And I realized it was archetypical of my whole life. I lived much of my life that way. I would just kind of be random in what I did, and then I'd figure out where I was in the problem and try to get myself out of it. And I, the reason I say that is, is that if I had really been caref careful with those first five steps, I really wouldn't have spent the rest of my time trying to figure out how to get myself out of it. And that's where this church is. This church just isn't thinking anymore. They do things that if they could be honest with themselves and they looked at it, they'd say, do you realize how insane your behavior is? Do you realize how completely ignorant your behavior is? Because if you could just think for a minute, just for a minute, and you would look at you and say, this, there's nothing right about this kind of choice. Well, what is it that he's speaking about? He's speaking about a church that has resided away from a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ at the cross and has moved to what any other religion can reside to, where it's about a system of works. And let me put it in its simplest sense, who makes the move and who responds? Because that is the difference between Jesus and everything else. 
The idea of beginning in the Spirit or doing anything by the Spirit is you responding to God doing something. What Scripture says is that the Holy Spirit dwells with, that's that beside word, that para, with every human being on the planet. Now what I mean by that is simple. He doesn't dwell in a person who has not accepted Jesus. He's dwelling beside you. And right now, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, he's pushing you right now into Jesus. If this is bothering you, your problem probably isn't with me. But the moment that you respond accordingly to the Holy Spirit, he's going to bring you to the feet of Jesus. You're going to accept the gift of Jesus. And then he's going to come and make his home inside of you to clean you from the inside out. To make your whole life one now driven to live and to dwell and to prosper at the feet of Jesus. There's the problem. Is that everything else says... You need to do this and God will respond. Get sober. Get straight. Get clean. Get nice. Get honest. Get serious. Get careful about people. Get abstinent. Get lonely. Don't go out to the clubs anymore. Don't go do drugs. Don't go sleep with anyone. Then maybe if you do all of that, God will respond accordingly. You are the one who's making it happen. God is the one responding. Give to the poor. Build orphanages. Clothe the naked. House the homeless. Build houses to rescue the trafficked, give to the charities, sell all your stuff, live as a vagabond among lepers. And maybe if you're kind enough, you could get liberation, be nice, get a better afterlife, get a better life. But you're still the one making it happen. And then somehow whoever you've created on the other side of that, that's sort of sitting at the X Factor booth, is making the choice on whether or not that's enough. And the church, like anything else, can be notorious for conceding back to this nonsense. The entirety, as we looked at last week, is about grace and how the grace how the gospel of Jesus Christ banks on is built on and the fundament is grace the grace is a gift given to you you will never deserve I'll never deserve grace is never reliant on the deservedness of the recipient but rather on the kindness of the giver or it's not grace The first two chapters, it's a six-chapter book. The first two chapters, Paul gives a personal backup to the gospel of grace. Here's how it looks personally in his own life, how he encountered Jesus. He was not, Paul did not start something and God responded. Jesus started something, knocked him down, and Paul responded. Paul's call to ministry was not something Paul started and God responded. Jesus called him and Paul responded. Paul's giftings that he's been given were not because he went to some seminary, was not because someone laid hands on him and gave him some special gifts. It was because God did something and Paul responded. The ministry and the fruit of that ministry was because God did something and Paul responded. And he's looking at a church that should know that because Paul was sick and he was weak and he was really unimpressive when he showed up in Galatia and the church took him in, the people there took him in. And in the first two chapters, he talks about, from a personal perspective, his own testimony and how he even had to go against Peter who started flipping things back over again. So the first two chapters are personal. Chapters 3 and 4 are more from principle. He talks about it from a more doctrinal perspective. As a matter of fact, next week, God willing, when we go from verses 5 then all the way through, through 16, 
6 through 16, we'll see in one way or another 11 different verses referred to in those verses about how there's a biblical precedent for this whole issue of grace. So there's sort of a doctrinal position that he's clearly showing from all of Scripture that the entire Bible agrees with this. So the first two chapters, personal. The next two chapters, in principle. And then the the last two chapters, 5 and 6, are going to be practical. Now that we understand grace, how do we live that out? That's kind of the way this book looks. Now here in this part, look at it, it's actually rather simple, but as you can tell, Paul is a bit flabbergasted. He's looking at these people and he's going, oh my goodness, really, you guys? Hello? Are you really thinking this through? Who has bewitched you? The word for bewitched, by the way, is the word baskaino. And the word baskaino literally means, if you will, to fascinate. Somebody that so impresses you, you kind of swoon a little bit. You kind of fancy a little bit. And then he says, who has done this? Who's kind of shown up in such a way and done something so amazing that you were like, oh, whatever he says is great and perfect. That you should not obey the truth. And what's interesting is even the word obey is not a traditional word for obey here. The word literally means, in essence, to rest on in confidence and act upon it. So put all of this together for a second. The idea is this. The idea is that somewhere on the line, Paul said, look it, clearly I'm not gifted in my ability to speak. And by the way, when Paul showed up in Galatia, most people kind of believe he had something like malaria. He was really in bad shape. And they took him in because the guy was just barely making it. And they kind of took him in. But Paul still preached the gospel. People were getting saved. The church was built out of it. And clearly Paul did not earn any of that. In regards to the gifts and the talents of God. He was using a very weak, unimpressive vessel so people couldn't give Paul the credit. And somebody comes in afterwards and says, hey. So let's put it in a sort of context for a second. Let's say that Lucas finds this amazing girl. Rosarita. Rosarita from, from Nicaragua. And she can dance. And he starts to play his guitar and sing. And she starts to dance. And she steals his heart away. And all of a sudden, everywhere you go, there he is. She's kind of doing her little dance. And he's just kind of ah, following her behind like this. Oh, I love her. I love her. I love her. And somewhere down the line, you know, they sit and he goes, All right, will you marry me, Rosarita? And Rosarita says, Si. And the two of them come to the altar and they stand there and they get married. And then they go and they kind of head off. But they head off someplace else. So let's say that they head off to someplace like split Croatia. And as they end up in split Croatia, somebody comes over and goes, no, wait a minute. And he and starts to talk with, with Rosarita. And he goes, Rosarita, listen, you're not really married. Because if you are really married, here are some things you have to have. And, and this is what you're going to have to do now. I mean, if you're really married, you're going to have to make sure you have at least five children. And not only are you going to need to make sure you have at least five children, you're going to need to make sure that the house, that you buy a house and you own a house and you make it yours and that this needs to be there and this needs to be there because this is what married people do. On the other side of it, someone comes over to, to Lucas and look and they say, Lucas, listen, buddy, if you're really going to be married, she needs to have a ring of some value or she, you guys aren't really married. I mean, what's this whole band thing? I mean, something like I'm, this, this girl should have a hard time lifting her hand because really you're not married until you've got your butter like something with a rock in it. And after, what they do is they start playing these heavy trips and they leave these heavy trips to the point where all of a sudden they start to question whether they're even really married anymore. Because somehow people have laid these heavy trips on them. It's not about the relationship anymore. It's about these rules and standards somebody else threw in. And then you're like, oh my goodness. Before this point, I was just enjoying her. We were well, kind of Disney, you know, kind of music was playing in the background and chocolate was flowing through the streams and doves were released and confetti was falling and Vivaldi was playing in the background. It was so beautiful. And now it's like we look at each other and go, I'm not even sure we're like, even like really married technically. Well, that's exactly what they're doing here with God. Is these people come and go, yeah, look at, I know it's that, that Jesus offered this and you said you accepted it. But if you're, re- you can't really even do that unless you get circumcised as a guy, you memorize the book of Leviticus, and you have to do at least these 623 different things that are written, and the traditions which add, by the way, another 32,000 different other things. And if you don't do all of those, how do you even know that you're even a Christian? Now, now, we don't do that. 
But this is the way it kind of looks. Well, if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't wear a hat in church. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't grow a beard. Which I always think is funny when people used to say that, because I think, try to tell that to Jesus. Right? Did he cover his head? Okay, well, if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't paint your toes. Well, your toenails, not just your toes. That's kind of weird. But I've, I've had people approach me on each of these subjects. You can't wear makeup. Guys, you can't grow your hair any certain length beyond so-and-so. Gals, you can't show your hair. It needs to be covered. Matter of fact, while you're at it, make sure that no one sees your neck or your ankles, too. And everything in between, by the way. And what happens is we get to this place where we lay these trips. And I understand why people kind of do that. They don't, want to be, they don't want to be stumbled. They don't want to be confused or whatever. But what happens is, is that you get to this point again where you start thinking, I need to do it and maybe God will respond if I do it right. And the whole relationship is flipped again. And the first, in the, with the example with Lucas, Lucas went in hot pursuit of Rosarita. Rosarita did nothing to win that love. She existed Caught Lucas's eye, and that was enough. And the game was afoot from that point on. But you can convince her otherwise. This is what it looks like in Scripture, and we'll get into our text. Because we're going to see it's the beginning, the middle, and the end, to the very end, will always be about this. <clears throat> Perhaps you're familiar with one of my favorite books. I have 66 favorite books that are all in Scripture. But one of them is only four chapters long, and it's the book of Ruth. I like to call it the Gospel of Ruth. And the story of Ruth, perhaps you're familiar with it. There's this gal, she has two sons. Uh, Halion and Malon and Chilion. By the way, their names literally mean sick and tired. I mean, who names their kids that, right? And somewhere, they, there's no bread in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. So there's no bread in the house of bread, so they have to go. And they head out to Moab, which is east. It's in the area of Jordan today. And as they go over to Jordan, there's bread there. So the woman, her husband, and her two sons head over to Moab. And while they're in Moab, the two sons each get a, a, a wife. One's name is Orpah, which means deer or fawn. And then one's name is Ruth, which means friend. And ultimately, the woman loses her husband. And then, as you might have guessed, sick and tired both die. And now the woman is staring at two daughters-in-law who now aren't married to sons because they're dead. And she kind of looks at him, and this is a bit of an awkward moment, but she also hears that there's bread back in the house of bread in Bethlehem. So she looks at the girls and she says, girls, listen, you're young, you're beautiful. I mean, this is a loose paraphrase, but don't just believe me. Read it for yourself. It's four chapters. It's one of my, you're going to love it. She looks and goes, look, it. just go back and find yourself another man. I mean, look, it. I have nothing to offer you at this point. I'm old. I'm bitter. The woman, by the way, the mother-in-law, her name is Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, you can change my name. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Yeah, I used to be pleasant. I had a husband and two sons. Now I have none of those. Girls, just go. Go and start your life somewhere else. I have nothing to offer you. And one goes, no, I'll come with you. And she goes, no, really, go. And she says, okay. And fawn, fawns off. And then there's the other one, Ruth. And the friend stays a friend. And she says, listen. I committed to you the moment I married into this marriage. And when I came into this marriage, I knew you came as part and parcel of it, and I'm not leaving. If you're going, I'm going. Your God's going to be my God. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. It's just that simple. So don't even try to get me to leave you. I'm just staying with you. You're just going to have to get over it. At which point she's like, okay. So the two of them now, this is the mother-in-law, pleasant, or now bitter, and friend, head back into Bethlehem. And the people are excited because pleasant's coming back. So when Pleasant's coming back, I was like, yeah, Pleasant's coming back. But then they're like, oh, she's not really Pleasant anymore. And she's like, don't call me Pleasant. I'm bitter. God's been bitter with me. The Almighty's been bitter with me. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. But God had allowed a provision back in the Torah where if you're poor or a stranger, you couldn't harvest the outside corners of your field. You left that for the poor people. Which means God didn't give them a hand out. He gave them a hand up. Hey, it was there for the taking, and you could go and get it, but it wasn't going to just someone wasn't going to mail it to you. Also, you could only go through the field once. And once your harvesters went through the field, anything that grew or was left behind gets also picked up by the poor people and the stranger. This was one of God's welfare ways. So, 
Ruth learns about this and she says, hey, well, why don't I go and take care of that? Mom, we're going to starve to death unless somebody does something. Why don't I go to the field and start to try to do that? So she happens to walk into a field of a guy named Strong. Macho. Macho! And his name, Boaz. Boaz means strong. And, and what happens is she's there and she's working. She's just trying to gather behind the gleaners. She's just trying to go and work in the field. And what happens is this guy kind of walks in and he's kind of like, hey. And the way that he's introduced, if we were doing this like a play, the way he's introduced is so cool. The first words out of his mouth are the Lord. He says, hey, the Lord bless you to his, his employees. And his employees goes, hey, the Lord bless you too, boss. Which t- and then it isn't like they go, yeah, that guy, what does he get off doing that? There is this kind of really cordial relationship between them. There seems to be some form of mutual respect. But you can see him going, hey, the Lord bless you guys. And like, hey, Lord bless you too, boss. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Psst. Who that? And one of his servants goes, oh, that's that foreign girl. Her name's Friend. I mean, she was here all day working in the morning. She took a break during the heat of the day when it was because it gets really hot, in the, you know, about noon. She's back out there again working for her mother-in-law because her mother-in-law lost her husband and her boys. I mean, it isn't like in that culture you can do anything for work. She's trying to take care of mom. So let me ask you, what kind of condition do you think Ruth is in at this moment? Do you think she's looking her best? She's been in the field all day. Do you think she's smelling her best? Do you think she's having a good hair day? Ruth is probably the farthest from her eHarmony profile picture she could have. But he wants her anyways. You see, there was something about the way, just at that moment, there was a connection he had in his heart that she could never have earned. So he starts leaving her these little traces, these little blessings. And he, t- he says, all right, guys, he invites her to his table. I mean, she gets called up in the lunchroom, if you will, to the table of the owner. And then he says, hey, I've got some special parched grain. Why don't you have some of this? You can dip it in the vinegar if you want. He's given her his own personal reserve. Now, if you were one of the workers of Boaz, wouldn't you kind of go, well, I think I smell something here. She comes back with this big, with this big load of, of uh, grain. It's the barley harvest. You know, mom, mother-in-law is like, oh my goodness, what is this? She says, yeah, I was in this field of this guy. I don't know, Bozo, Bono, Bobo. She's like, Boaz? Oh yeah, Boaz, Boaz. She's like, that guy is a candidate to come and actually redeem this house. He can come in, but for that to happen, you guys are going to have to get married. Now, he has already been leaving all these traces. And hear me, he's actually telling his workers. What a sheave is, by the way, is you would go, like, for instance, in the wheat, and you would grab the whole thing with a sickle, you'd cut it, and then you'd tie it up, and that's a sheave. And the boss is saying to his workers, now the guys who are actually harvesting, hey, when you do it, get a little sloppy. Let some of it fall out. Leave a few, let some of the sheaves kind of fall off of the thing. And, but make sure she stumbles upon them. And can you see kind of the delight in Boaz? Because he's all excited about it. Because you can see he's just kind of like, man, I just can't wait till she discovers it. And man, I see the heart of God in that. Those moments where, see, you're stumbling upon things and you don't even know that God's left them there all day for you to trip over. And he's like, oh man, wait till Louie walks over this. Wait till, Ma- you know, wait till Maureen stumbles on top of this. She's going to go, oh my goodness, this is a lucky day. You can see God going, no, I left that there. So you would know I love you. So she goes back ultimately, and mom gives this advice, and please hear me. Mom says, okay, I think, girl, let me, let me work this out for you. This is what I want you to do. Number one, I want you to take a bath. Number two, I want you to put on that best cologne, midnight in the harvest. Oh, that's, yeah. And then remember that red dress that you've never worn yet? Put that thing on and then go throw yourself at his feet. And understand, here's the problem. Is that what the mother-in-law was doing is exactly what's taking place at the Galatian church. You see, we as the reader know he already loves her. We as the reader know he already wants her. We as the reader know he's already been leaving all of these hints and clues about how over the heels he is about her. But mom says, mother-in-law says, this is what you need to do. If you really want God to love you, if you really want Boaz to love you, you need to clean yourself up. 
You need to clothe yourself to make yourself look good. You need to anoint yourself. And then you need to throw yourself at his feet. Might I suggest she was 25% right. Throw yourself at his feet. Say, I'm yours. He already loved her when she was none of those things. And all she had to do was respond. Now hear me in this text. This is what it says here. Oh, you guys. You're just not thinking this through. Who has so enamored you? Who has so captured your heart and your ears and your mind that you just no longer lean on and trust the truth? Before whose eyes, verse 1, it says, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed to you as crucified. They were portrayed, by the way, for what it's worth. Prografo. Grafo, like right, pro, like, and the best example would be, you know, hey, listen, you're at Piccadilly Circus, and all of the lights around you show Jesus is crucified. It's like saying he was advertised in front of you, displayed in front of you, clearly shown as crucified. How could you look, go away from what was so clear to this? So can I ask you something? If you really think this is about you doing it and God responding, how'd you get saved? Understand, isn't that when you receive the Spirit? According to Ephesians 1, the moment you believed in the gospel of your salvation, God sealed you with his Holy Spirit. Did you earn that salvation or did you respond? Did you make it happen or did you respond to God's offer? Because what's interesting is even in this notice the word receive versus reach out and grab it. Receive means it was already thrust at you. He was already thrust at you. You just had to respond. In the particular story, you're the beloved, friends. You're not the pursuer. God's the pursuer. He is the lover hot on your heels, just wanting you to respond to his love. And so the sunrise comes, and the birds sing outside your window, and these flowers grow that you never knew were there. Or in my case, mint grows up in my back garden. And I realize that's mint I can make tea with, and I love mint tea. Who grew that mint? I never planted it. My lover did. Where did that song come from? My lover wrote that song for me. Where did the sky get painted in neon like that? Who did that with brush, beautiful, broad strokes? My lover did that. Who created food that tastes so amazing and then gave me taste buds to enjoy it? My lover did that. Who gave me the beauty of being able to stare into the eyes of one of my children and see them giggle? My lover did that. So how in the world do I think I have to earn this now? Every bit of this is God constantly showing me, throwing sheave after sheave after sheave at me and saying, please, will you receive my love? And Paul's looking, he's going, church, when did it become about you doing it and God responding? And we can do it by turning Christian words into that. Like we have faith in our faith. If you have the right faith, your faith can make God... Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Who's responding now? If you worship, you're going to make God what? If you pray right, you're going to make God... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's doing the responding here? Well, then why do I pray? Because when I'm seeking the Lord, pray, proskukamai literally means to throw myself to God's goodwill. God says, I already have something. I want to bless you. I have this thing bespoke to you. And I know that when we're together and you're in your prayer closet and being honest with me, I can give you every bit of it. You're not moving my hand. You're opening yours. I'm already pouring it out. It's just whether you want to receive it. So let me ask you. Your being right with God, whatever that means to you, Did you get right because God made the move and you responded? Or because you're trying to do it yourself?
pray enough, give enough, do enough, be a nice enough person. I'm a good person. I do nice stuff. Really? Who's the one who's initiating? Because you know that the initiator will always be responsible to maintain. Does that make any sense? If you're the one who initiates, you're going to have to maintain it. The good news is, my God initiated. and My God maintains. I just respond. And notice in verse 3, it goes to the next step. Maybe you have accepted the gift of Jesus. There's the idea. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. Jesus died on the cross for me when I was his enemy. When I was dead in my own trespasses and sin, he died on the cross for me, rose again and says, I'm offering this as payment for all your guilt. I'm asking for your okay. I'm asking for your permission. I'm offering it. You respond. I want to be the Lord, Savior, and love of your life. Will you let me? That's your choice. I've made the move. You have to respond. Maybe you have said yes. If you haven't, I'm going to give you a chance at the end of this. You don't have to understand anything other than that to be able to say, you know what, if that's what you really want to do, why would I say no to that? But then let me ask, if you have said yes, look at verse 3. There's our word foolish again. If you're so foolish to begin then maybe with the Spirit in responding, but now are you trying to actually flip the coin for the rest of your life? Well, now that I'm his, I have to work it off the rest of my life. And you know what? By the way, can I just say, there was an official doctrine of the Catholic Church for quite a while. To be honest, it's never been negated. I just don't know if it's been enforced as much. That says that Jesus died only for the sins until you say yes to him. And then from that point on, you've got to work him off. That's why he's perpetually on a cross. Can I say scripturally? He died for every one of our sins. Beginning, middle, and end. But now it's like, well, now I have to pray, and now I have to... Well, look at, are you praying to get something or in response to something? Am I reading to get something or in response to something? Here's the difference. God's Word is active and living, and it calls out to me, and I want to get into it because I want to know my Lord and Savior better, but I'm responding to God's call to say, know me better. Prayer is not, God, I just want to move your hand so you can give me more stuff and do stuff. It's like, you know what, God, you want to spend time with me and I'm responding. It's like God's like, you know, I get a little text in my heart that says, let's spend time together. I'm okay, Lord. He says, let's pray. And I realize every bit of what I can do now and what I am now as a Christian is about responding to his love. Responding to his call. Is that where we're at today or are we trying instead? Are we trying instead to start by responding to God and then trying to make the rest of it our efforts instead? If I can do it, God will respond. If I can do it, God will respond. If I pray enough, God will respond. If I give enough, God will respond. Well, then all of a sudden we flipped back to where we were before this. And God does not want that. So he says in verse 4, Have you suffered so much in vain, if indeed it really was in vain? Is this really about the fact that you were being persecuted for this, and as a result you caved in and decided to to flip the relationship all the way around? Verse 5 says, Therefore he who supplies this spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Do you realize what that is? That's ministry. No, all of a sudden everything's changed. Because now it's not, okay, God says, you know what, I want to do crazy great things through you now. And you're like, well, if I fast enough, God will give that to me. If I pray enough, if I read enough, if I'm in church enough. But hear me, if I respond to God, you know what he's going to do? He's going to do it all through me and I become his jersey. And this is why church fails. Because somewhere we think that we're actually the craftsmen and God's just sort of like the plug-in so that we can get our gifts to work. Instead of we're the jersey that God puts on and he does all the work, we're just responding to it. And what happens is in every case, he makes the move, I respond. And that is so revolutionary, it's almost impossible for me to wrap my mind around. God goes, look at, I want to go and transform London, and can I use you too in that? I'm like, please. He's like, no, seriously. I'm like, please. When God speaks to Moses, he says, look at, I've heard the cries of my people. I've seen their pain, their anguish, and I know their pain, so I'm going to come down there and deliver them. And Moses is like, yeah, loose paraphrase. And God goes, so let's go. You can see Moses going, whoa, 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 I was good with you to the let's part. What do you mean let's go? He's like, well, I'm going to use you. And listen to Moses' response, because it's the same response you'll give too. Who am I? Funny, Moses, that's so unimportant in a moment ago. 
When I heard, when I saw, when I knew you were okay with it. When I said I was going to deliver them, you were good with it. But the moment I included you in on the process, you got a little weird. You started thinking, oh, let me think all about me. Funny, the only thing about you was I'm going to use you. Imagine the watering can that you're pouring water on the flowers, saying, I don't know if I have the degree in agriculture. You're a watering can. Let me tilt you. Pour you out. And as I pour you out, plants are going to get watered. Weird how that works. And you're like, but I don't have the power to water them myself. And God says, yeah. Now that we're concluding that, but I'm not demanding you to. I want, And this is why God overflows. He gives us life abundant. He gives us joy above and beyond what we can contain. Peace above and beyond our own understanding. It's so much so that we gives, he pours so much into us. We can't even help but spill because he keeps pouring in us and it keeps overflowing. We, you know what we have to do? Just receive. And it starts to happen. So let me ask you something. Ministry. Hey, that doesn't mean you can't get equipped. That doesn't mean you don't get in the Word because you want to know God better. But the moment it moves away from responding, the relationship starts to get rough. And you get tired. You're like, oh man, ministry's so rough, and oh my goodness, and reading, ah, just, you know, I used to be able to read so much, and now it's like a rough thing, and now I have to kind of move myself into it. I want to read everything but the Word now, and, and I want to be anywhere but the church, and I want to be anywhere, I mean, I'll listen to anything, and I'll speak to anyone, but I just don't want to be in prayer. I mean, it's, don't make me pray, please don't make me pray. Because somehow we feel like what's back down, it's on our shoulders. Like, I can't do it right. And the water can says, I can't water right. And God says, I can. Let me ask you something. Have you started in the Spirit responding to God? Because if you haven't started there, that's where it needs to start. If you have started there, are you maturing that same way? Are you responding to His Word? Are you responding in prayer? Are you responding to his call to put you in a fellowship so that you can be available to let God use you? Or are those just rules now? If so, if they're just rules, then you're doing in the flesh what God wants to do in the spirit. And you'll never be perfected that way. And when you're there and you're growing, you go from saying yes to Jesus in response to growing in Jesus in response to his spirit now moving inside of us. And then he starts developing when this desires to serve. And then it's like ministry starts to come. And it all happens so supernaturally, naturally that you just kind of, it just starts to happen. And then all of a sudden, are you there and you're like, oh God, I need more of your spirit. What do I need to do to do more, to get more of your spirit? Do you see where that goes? You keep putting, we keep putting it back on our own shoulders. When the man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What must I do to do the works that God requires? He says, let me tell you what, this is the work of God. That you would believe in it. He's like, man, stop putting it on your shoulders. God's like, I want to do all the work. I'm just looking for volunteers. I'm looking for a jersey to put on. When you go into your prayer closet, you basically throw yourself on a hanger so God could put you on. There's the beauty. So listen as we go to prayer now. God wants tonight in this room to set you free. And man, if all you are trying to do at this moment is just trying to get God to not be angry at you, you've got the wrong God. There's a lover in hot pursuit of you. And man, listen, no wonder why when you get to the book of Revelation and these churches are written to, they're in a crisis At least five of those seven churches are in a crisis. And when he talks to the church of Ephesus, the one, by the way, that John was was the overseer for, the guy who was receiving the letter, and I wonder how rough that would be for me. He's like, look, hey, you're good with the truth, man. You know how to sniff out a phony, but you left your first love. And he goes, you know, he doesn't say, as a result of that, I'm going to nail you. He says, will you please come home? Remember from where you fell. Return. Repent. 
Repent means change your mind. Change your mind about what you really think is important right now. Change your mind about how this has to happen. I'm, and he goes and he says, I stand at the door and knock. When he gets to the church of Laodicea, the one closest, by the way, to Galatia here. And he goes, look, at, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Who's the one initiating and who's the one he's asking to respond? I stand at the door and knock. And if anybody will come and answer the door. Who's initiating? Who's responding? So look at, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to offer you, just I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm not here to embarrass you. I wouldn't know who that would be anyways, but I'm just going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen so you know what you're agreeing to. And at the end, if you say yes, I just ask you to give a confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. You know what? I can say yes to that prayer. Let that be my prayer. But if you've already said yes to Jesus, I want to pray a prayer for us too. We would get back to the responding one. Our eyes would be open and our hearts and our minds would be open to the lover of our souls because it's all about grace by his spirit. And our point of it is just trusting. That's faith. And faith just means, you know what? I trust you enough to receive this gift. I'm going to say yes because I trust you. That's our part. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done here tonight. Thank you for the way, Lord, that you have spoken to us. And I confess to you, Lord, it is easier. It's harder and easier. It's easier intellectually to try to do this in the flesh. But it's harder in every other way. Because somehow I feel like I have more control over it. It doesn't demand my faith. I don't have to trust anyone except for maybe myself to try to make something happen to, to initiate. But God, why would you create man and then leave him to scramble to try to discover what are the rules of engagement so that somehow if we just maybe somehow figure out how to do it right, maybe we'll get a favorable decision? That sounds like such a crazy, weird way of having a relationship or none at all. But what's clear in Scripture is you made us for you. We were an intentional creation by a God who doesn't make mistakes, who created us to be with Him. But we have in our own selfish ways pursued our own selfish things away from you. We're guilty. You don't even have to throw your law out for that because we are guilty because even our own consciences testify that whatever rules we've made up, we've gone past. But you knew all of this ahead of time because you're God. Because you love us. You already had the plan. And so you sent your only begotten son, the only one of your gene pool, God the Son, who volunteered to take all of our punishment for all of the guilty things we've done. And he was nailed to a cross so that all of it, every, every, every sin, every thought, motive, intention, value, deed, word, anything and everything laid to rest. He paid for it all there at the cross just like the scripture had promised for thousands of years prior. He was buried just like you said and just like scripture promised, he rose again on the third day so that he could not just be the Savior who died for me, but the Lord who lives for me. So I may not understand everything, but Jesus, if you really did die for me to pay the bill of my own guilt and raise again to be the Lord of my life, to change and revolutionize my life, to give me that love and joy and peace, I am responding to that offer by saying yes. I recognize this will never be anything I will have earned. I'll never be able to pay you back for it. 
You've simply asked for me in faith, in trust, to receive this gift, and I say yes. So have me, wash me clean, declare me innocent, and make me yours. I declare Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord. I'm yours. If you agree with that prayer, and tonight you want to say yes to the gift of Jesus, I ask right now at this moment, You simply say, Amen. Lord, you've heard. You've heard our hearts. You've heard our mouths. I pray your peace would flood our hearts and minds and heart right now. That we would even right now experience the difference of a new life. The peace and the joy that only comes by you the love for others that we would never have had otherwise. And now, Lord, I pray for every believer in this room, myself included, including those who may have just said yes now. Lord, forgive us for how we flip the relationship back to us being the initiator and you the responder. And tonight, Lord, get us back to our first love. And tonight, may we, like Ruth, realize that you loved us when we were at our worst. And what we really need to do is to respond by throwing ourselves at your feet, saying yes to your offer. So, Lord, tonight, give us a fresh hunger for your word that we would know you better in response to your call to know you better. Give us a fresh prayer life in response to a God that says, come and speak with me. Give us a fresh appreciation and love for the fellowship as we respond to your spirit moving inside of us to make us a family. Give us a fresh openness to be used by you as you develop within us ministries. But may it always be in response to the work you're doing now. May we be completely open and available and, and, and Lord, really keen to respond appropriately and aware of your emotion to us and in us. As your spirit lives inside of us now, we respond and surrender as well. We say, here you are, be our first love all over again. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, saints, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, I just pray now for all of us. Send us out of here in joy. And may we celebrate a God who will never change and will always be in hot pursuit of a deeper or meaningful relationship with us on this side of earth. And when we see you, we'll be like you. It's just better from that point on for eternity. And so, Lord... Continue to develop in us now, we pray. You move, we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.